Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, also known as Lectionary 5, which this year falls on February 5th. Woohoo! We have one content notification for you for today. We talk about fasting when we're discussing the first reading and a teeny bit in Let's Make a Muppets musical. Yeah. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our episode today, we are excited. Well, I'm excited for our deep dive because we are diving deep into salt. Salt in food, salt in history, salt in science, salt and pop culture, every kind of salt we could imagine. Because we love you, we have learned how to organize our deep dives. <laughs> that is You're true. You're welcome. We've got categories and everything. So let's start with salt and food, because I think that's what most of us think of when we think about salt. And mm -hmm. I certainly have grown up thinking of as a meme, which started when I think I was in college, says salt is the magic rock that makes everything taste delicious, or at least almost everything. <laughs> yeah, I, for a long time, was like discouraged from using salt. Like in our family, it was just like, somehow I got the message that like, there's too much salt. So just don't add it. So I didn't add sure. it to anything. Sure. Well, I grew up like, in a family with a big eh. history of high blood pressure, which we'll get to later. And so I think that probably sank into me too. I still prefer to buy unsalted butter because I think it tastes better. Yeah, I usually buy unsalted butter, but the rest of my housemates are in the salted butter camp. So sure. I usually don't win out on that. But like, I used to not salt eggs. And then I okay. did, and I was like, oh, like I just didn't know what it was for, what the purpose of salt was. So I didn't sure. realize that what it does is brings out the flavors in the, like the other flavors in the food and like makes them a little bit more. It's like a saturation on a camera. Yeah, favorite. I think the first time I was encouraged to understand how salt worked with food was, and this wouldn't apply to you as a vegetarian, was with steaks. You put just a pinch of salt over a steak and it will make it taste so much more fantastic. Hmm. I definitely sense. grew up in a household that absolutely did not ever use steak sauce because that is an insult to the cow. But <laughs> When I worked at camp during family camp, I think they did a big brisket cook. Oh, sure. And all we did for the seasoning to like marinate it or the rub or whatever was salt and pepper. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Most good quality meat you can do that with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, there are a few things that really don't need salt to be added to them. Sure. For me, margaritas are real high on that <laughs> list. I just don't like a salted rim on a margarita. Okay. I was also thinking of the Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode where Amy, who does not know how to cook, tries to make Thanksgiving dinner and add salt instead of sugar to several dishes. And that goes very, very badly. Ooh, yeah, yeah. That would be suboptimal, as they say. On the other hand, there are some things where you wouldn't necessarily expect it when you first think about it, but adding salt does seem like a good idea. I feel like about 15 years ago, the world discovered salted caramel all at the same time. <laughs> and ever since, everything that is a dessert has had a salted caramel extra upsell, very expensive version. Well, and they, like the initial salted caramel wasn't that bad. Like it was actually yeah, a good little bit of salt. It was just a little bit enhances the flavor exactly. But if you add too much, just to make it very clear that this is salted caramel and that's what you're paying extra for, that gets to be not. Great. Yeah, like there is actually a Ben and Jerry's flavor that has a salted caramel core, and sure. I tried it once, and I love caramel. I could hardly get through it. So now, whenever there's salted caramel, I'm like, okay, but how salted is it? <laughs> Because I really need it to not be that salted. Yeah. Also, one of the unexpected ways that salt works for food is in baking. It helps yep. activate things. It does not activate yeast. It does the opposite thing for yeast. It kills yeast. But, yeah. Yeah. But in a lot of like baking soda, baking powder type of recipes, salt is a really important ingredient. And if you don't have it, you suffer. And yeah. that's where salted butter comes in sometimes because people are like, oh, I've never had sure. to add salt to my recipes, even though it calls for it. And it's like, well, what kind of butter are you using? 
Oh, salted yeah. butter. Okay. There you go. Yeah, also for that matter, it's important with the yeasted recipes, because if you don't add it to the yeast recipes, they just keep growing. And <laughs> it's that true. doesn't always it's work true. out well. Yeah. On Great British Baking Show, the like times that I've seen the recipes or they've talked sure. about them, they put the yeast on one side and the salt on the other as dry ingredients. And then they sure. like just mix it in. So it it's not that separated for any like meaningful length of time, but that's how they like let the yeast well, work some. Yeah. And then when I've made bread in my bread machine, I cheat, I have a bread machine. The idea is you put the yeast in warm water to let it sort of wake up and activate and give it a little sugar or honey mm -hmm. to eat. And you let that sit for about 10 minutes. And then you put that into the mix of stuff with like your flour and other things, but mm -hmm. not the salt. And then you mix in the wet ingredients. And then the salt is the very last item that you add into the bread machine before you turn it on and make it go. That makes sense. So that way the yeast has a little time to work before the salt kills it. Yeah. yeah. Also, in this vein, salt, as we've talked about, is a flavor thing. Salt adds flavor. There's like a million different types of salt. There's like pink Himalayan sure. salt. I don't know how I'm not a salt and like connoisseur. So I don't know the difference in flavors of salts. But one of the things that you can frequently find is kosher salt. Sure. And the like very basic understanding of kosher, right, is that dairy and meat don't mix. So then the question becomes, why does salt have to be kosher? And that is, so salt in and of itself would be parv, which means it doesn't have dairy and it doesn't have meat. But if it is not cooked, then when it is put on something warm, it is a cooking process, right? When it is heated up. And so sure. kosher salt has already been heated at some point so that it's been cooked without any dairy, without any meat. So you can put it on whatever you need to put it on and not worry about it. Oh, that. okay. That makes sense. Sure. You may have also heard that some salt that you can buy is iodized, which is to say iodine has been added to it. And the reason for this is that iodine is a necessary nutrient to human beings in order to avoid thyroid issues, particularly goiters are the visible version of that that people like to avoid. I don't know what goiters are. They are wildly unattractive things that happen to your throat. Okay. And we don't see a lot of goiters these days because we have started having iodized salt be a normal thing. And also not having enough iodine and your diet will lead to various types of malnourishment in addition to that. And if you have a limited diet for some reason, such as you are living in poverty or you are vegetarian or you have some kind of religious restrictions involved, mm -hmm. getting enough iodine in your diet can be difficult for many reasons. And as a lack of iodine is also the leading preventable cause of developmental disabilities, the Various governments around the world have decided to add a little iodine to common sources of salt so that people get enough iodine in their diet. Yeah, which then when you get to like the super foodie, right, there was a time in my life where I was like, somehow I got the message that like iodized salt is not as fancy and the fancy salts aren't iodized. Sure. That's not actually like a helpful thing. Like it is actually helpful to have iodized salt especially yeah. since I'm a vegetarian, but just like more broadly. Yeah, especially since most of the sources of iodine we have, aside from iodized salt, tend to be, frankly, meat or other expensive items in one's diet. Yeah. Yes, unless you are, you know, out in the wilderness drinking water and putting iodine Possibly. in your water to kill the germs. Yeah, well, then you already have a source of iodine because you're carrying it with you. So, yes. And the reason, of course, that we are talking about salt today is because we are reading a passage from Matthew chapter 5 that talks about salt losing its taste. And how does salt actually lose its taste in the real world, not when we're talking about it metaphorically? Well, sometimes that's because the salt involved contains chemical impurities, which is to say it got mm -hmm. mixed up with other stuff and the salt flavored the other stuff and therefore lost its flavor, which is what happens when we add salt to, you know, food. But uh. also the most common reason that salt will lose its taste is that the salt absorbs humidity from the air, which then the humidity evaporates from the salt and it sort of takes the flavor with it. And the stuff really? that is left behind looks like salt, but it's not actually salt and it doesn't have the flavor. It's a slightly different chemical. That is rude of the humidity. Yes. Hmm. I did not know that. Look at us learning things. And teaching other people, which is what this podcast is all about. Ta-da! Yay, nerdiness. So... That's salt and flavors. Yep. I definitely am curious for your favorite 
random thing that is salted and extra tasty and unexpected? Maybe that'll be our question for Sunday. I don't know. I am one of those odd people who I grew up with the iodized salt with the blue container with the girl with the yellow raincoat. Martin Salt Company! And the only time that I have used salt that honestly, like, I'm not particularly loyal to Morton brand, but the only time I have used salt that is not cheapo grocery store iodized salt is when I have needed it for like presentation purposes. Like if you're doing a baked good that has rock salt on it or something, mm-hmm. I have occasionally bought a little of that stuff. But mm-hmm. aside from that, I am 100% cheapo grocery salt thing, which is interesting because there are definitely items that are related to baked goods that I will absolutely shell out real money for, such as say vanilla extract. Buying the mm-hmm. good vanilla extract is absolutely worth it. So. Yes. Yeah. The Morton Salt Company, I think, is based here in Baltimore. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Yeah. So salt is super important. We'll get into kind of how it's important for humans and plants and animals, but it was so important and so valuable throughout history that it used to be the way that Roman soldiers were paid. So that's where the term salary comes from. They got paid in salt. Nice. And now we've managed to meet our Latin quota for this episode. How can we be nerdy if we're not mentioning Latin occasionally? After all. <laughs> and you may also have heard about the many uses that salt has been put to for food storage purposes and pr- preservation in history. The term salt pork referred to a type of meat that was specifically stored in salt. Historically speaking, storing meat for any length of time was a much more difficult undertaking because, of course, they didn't have refrigeration for so many centuries. And meat storage, mm-hmm. when it wasn't winter out, was a lot more complicated. And one way that you would store meat in order to have it be able to last for a while without going bad and therefore, you know, poisoning you and your family Uh was to pack it in truly immense amounts of salt, which would take the moisture out of it. And therefore, because there wasn't any moisture in the meat, it would last longer because it was dehydrated. And then, of course, like you had to use certain particular methods for cooking it so that you would add the moisture back in and also take out the truly immense amount of salty flavor that had been added into the meat. Yeah. Like, for example, beef jerky. Right? Jerky is a salted meat. I don't think they work hard to take the salt out. Maybe that's why so many things were boiled, because boiling usually takes out flavor. But if you have too much salt flavor, then taking that out might be a good thing. Yeah, I would not be surprised. Boiling meat will also make it more tender to a certain Mm, extent because you're adding water into it. And also, of course, if you boil something, you're killing off germs. Not that they knew about germs back then, but they would have figured out eventually that it made them healthier and less sick. Made them more sick. Yeah. You may have also heard the term of salting the earth, which in the ancient Near East, as particularly with the Assyrians and the Hittites, probably back in biblical or pre-biblical times, that actually started as a religious purification ritual that was used on destroyed or desecrated cities. You'd go to the destroyed city and you would sprinkle salt around the edges and in certain spots, along with some other minerals, to purify the area after it had been destroyed and desecrated. So is that what happened to lots? wife well yeah we do need to bring up lot's wife at some point here turning one person into a pillar of salt would be a much bigger undertaking i would have to imagine and you probably could have used her to purify all kinds of cities like all over the place that would have been a lot of salt but what eventually happened was of course that they would do this ritual and later on people would start noticing that the places that had been salted, you couldn't grow food there. You couldn't grow any kind of plant on land that had been salted. It destroyed the ability of plant life to be able to grow there. And Mm -hmm. so that turned it into a method of destroying croplands and making sure that people couldn't continue to live in certain areas or grow food. And it was then used as a method of war. And the other thing that salting the earth tends to do is because you can't grow food there, it, it apparently starts to like the whole area will smell really terrible. I don't Mm -hmm. know that I can exactly describe the smell, but I have heard repeatedly that the area that has been salted will just smell so very bad. I mean, in Utah, Salt Lake City, there's a salt lake and the salt flats and it smells like brine and yeah, it's not great. Not great, Bob. So been there for that one at least. 
Yeah, that's interesting because there's a flip side to that that we'll get to in our science section. The other big and probably one of the most well-known occurrences or important things with salt in history is Gandhi and the salt march that he led during the struggle for Indian independence. So in 1882, having not learned their lesson from taxing tea for the United States colonies, Great Britain passed a salt act that prohibited Indians from collecting or selling salt, which was a staple in their diet. And in everyone's diet. Yes. And Indian citizens were forced to buy salt from their British rulers, who, in addition to having the monopoly over the manufacture and sale of salt, also charged a heavy salt tax. You know, the British Empire doesn't strike me as particularly creative. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. So the Salt March was an act of nonviolent civil disobedience led by Mahatma Gandhi. The main part of it lasted for about 24 days in the spring of 1930 as a campaign of tax resistance and nonviolent protest against the British monopoly. And it started out with Gandhi and 78 of his trusted friends, and they walked. Sure. 385 kilometers or 239 miles from Sabarmati Ashram to Dandi, which is called Nabsari. And then at Dandi, which is like at the beach, Gandhi broke the British Raj, which is the law, at 8.30 a.m. on April 6th and made salt by means of evaporation. And that was like the big deal. And then was planning to continue on to Darasana Salt Works, which is about 40 kilometers south of there. And on the way there, just days before they got there for the next stage, Gandhi was arrested. But the rest of the group continued that work and had a Satyagraha, is what it's called, which is a nonviolent civil disobedience. Like that's the Indian term that they were using for that. And that was really well publicized globally and became a big part of the Indian independence movement. And that was kind of the kickoff to the nonviolent resistance part. So sure. I always thought that that was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get to science. Yay, science. So salt is also called sodium chloride, which is N-A-C-L as the chemical abbreviation. Yeah. And personally speaking, I remember that because about... Almost 15 years ago now, the ELCA, our denomination, had a splinter group leave the denomination over the ordination of people in same-sex relationships. And when that group left, they had to choose a new acronym for themselves, and they chose NALC, North American Lutheran Church. And the first time I saw that, and subsequently every single time since, it struck me that it seemed like they were shooting to be the salt of the earth and couldn't spell. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember that it's N-A-C-L because that's how you don't spell (laughs) (laughs) N-A-L-C. It is true that every time I see that, I think of that completely separately from you. Like I didn't have that association with it. So sodium chloride salt is used in a lot of science and chemical reactions and all of that stuff, especially acid-based chemistry. There's also different types of salt. So most of the time we're talking about sodium chloride as the type of salt that we're talking about when it comes to food, that sort of a thing. But having grown up in Colorado, one of the other very common forms of salt is magnesium chloride. And magnesium chloride is road salt. So it is what we put on the roads to melt the ice and snow and to make sure that they are still navigable. There are some places in Alaska and Minnesota where instead of trying to keep the roads clear, they try to keep them padded down try and keep the snow just padded down so people drive on the snow. And it works if your temperatures are staying below a certain temperature so that the snow doesn't like melt and turn to slush because that's when it gets And then turn to ice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, I would throw out there that uh, speaking of salt and science, when we talk about sodium chloride, that chloride part is especially important 
because pure sodium is not table salt. Pure sodium is incredibly unstable and can set fires really easily and like explodes under very simple circumstances. Please be careful should you ever come across pure sodium and don't set yourself on fire mm-hmm. or anyone else. And chloride is, you know, a little dangerous in its own right. So it's yeah. a really good thing when they buddy up. But in Colorado, because the economy is so dependent on it snowing and people being able to still drive, they use magnesium chloride very liberally. And you can see in the spring, especially on the side of the road, all of the trees are dead, all of the plants are dead or dying because it does so much harm to the environment. It also is problematic because deer especially who need salt in their diet will come and try to lick up the magnesium chloride because it's salt. It smells like salt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It puts them closer to the highway. It puts them more in danger. It's more likely to have car accidents, but also it's not actually salt. And so it's not actually like a good thing for for their bodies. So Colorado for the loss. Also environment for the loss on that one. Yeah. Use it sparingly if you have to use it for salting for ice and snow and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sand is less effective, but also is less damaging. Yeah. And the reason why adding salt, even if it's not like normal salt, even if it's magnesium chloride, the reason why adding that to the ground makes the roads safer is because adding salt to water, like say snow or ice, it lowers the temperature at which it melts, which means that it can melt even when it's colder out, which means that you can get rid of the stuff that's coating, say, your porch. Mm-hmm. Or the river. Yeah. And it, I think anybody who's salted ice can see, right, that it melts through sometimes. Yes. And that it just helps it to not be so stuck in, like, the slick mode. Right. So it gives it some friction. Even if not all of the ice is melted, when it's broken up, it's not going to make people fall yeah. in the same way. Yeah. So we talked about how salting the earth is harmful for vegetation and plant growth. And that is true. When you put too much salt into the earth, it is problematic. But plants do need some amount of salt. And that is because the only way that plants really absorb nutrients, so minerals and stuff from the ground, is when the nutrient is in the form of an ionic salt. And that charge gives the possibility for the nutrient, whatever type of salt it is, to pass through the membrane because of the charge. And that is needed to for the cellular cytoplasm. And there's a whole bunch okay. of like nitrogen salt and all sorts of different types of salt that people that are used in fertilizer because of that. Sure. Also, speaking of salt and how it interacts with water or liquid, if you have an animal, particularly a very small animal, that has a very high concentration of water or liquid to it, and you add salt to it, that's probably going to kill that animal. Thus, the Mm -hmm. concept of being able to kill slugs or possibly some kinds of worms with salt. And we just want to remind you folks, murder bad. Yeah. Especially like murder with no reason. Don't kill things just because you feel like it. Don't kill slugs and worms. They're cute sometimes. Yeah, they have useful functions in the world. That is definitely true. Yeah. And other animals that maybe are not quite so much water and no exoskeleton or no kind of clear boundary. Like deer love salt. So you can put out like salt licks in your yard in the wintertime and far away from your house so that they don't come close to your house and get used to people because that's dangerous you know but and then give them space to have some extra nutrients to get through the winter sure and when it comes to plants and animals non-human animals are not the only ones that need salt humans do too yay um so salt is necessary in the human body it is indispensable for the ways that nerve cells communicate with each other and is involved in a lot of different metabolic processes. My aunt used to love salt. She put salt on everything and a lot of it. And I think that's partly where I got my like too much salt, too much salt. Don't put salt on anything because it's already too much salt from. Yeah. And like to the extent that one time I bought her salt, I brought her back salt from a trip and she was like, 
I think, offended by it. But I was like, she loves salt, so I'll bring her this fancy salt. But then later in her life, she developed Parkinson's and along with some other comorbidity stuff. And she ended up actually needing more salt. Like she had decreased the amount of salt that she was eating, but her blood pressure was so low. And I think actually low blood pressure runs in at least part of my family, certainly for me. So she needed more salt in her diet. So then she had to go back to over salting everything in order to get enough salt in her diet. And I have a cousin who had like Crohn's disease and after his surgery, like had to have either a can of Progresso soup or over salt all of his other food every day because he just needed more of it for his body to absorb enough of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, if we don't have the salt, the water balance in our body doesn't really work. The tension of our tissues decreases. So our skin would get less elastic and more flabby. We would get varicose veins and it would cause problems for our organs. Just generally be unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some folks that need a high sodium diet, but there are also folks who wind up needing a low sodium diet. And my mm-hmm. grandpa, who also loved salt to the mm-hmm. point that he like drank soup bouillon like other people drank tea. Yeah. He wound up on, and many other members of my family wound up on low sodium diets because that is designed for people with heart or kidney problems and those with high blood pressure. Interestingly enough, I have one side of my family that tends towards high blood pressure, one side that tends towards low blood pressure, and I have continually tried to convince medical professionals that this means that I will be met in the middle of the two of them and just have perfect blood pressure for the rest of my life. It turns out (laughs) it probably doesn't work that way, but they're all very impressed by my optimism. (laughs) But yes, a low sodium diet is very important for some people. Mm -hmm. And I've had several family members who have gone through that process. And And a a secret tip slash trick for that is if you are on a low sodium diet and therefore are not getting the flavor that you would from salt, onion powder and garlic powder combined give a similar flavor. So I've heard. Yes. I I think that's the Eric version of Mrs. Dash. (laughs) Isn't it? I do not Which in my family was always known as the seasoning that you use when you can't use salt for medical reasons. Mm. And one last health-related reason that you might wind up using salt is the reason that I have encountered a couple of times with dentists. I have had many, many teeth removed from my mouth, including my wisdom teeth, and also some extra removed before I had my braces put in. Because Mm -hmm. contrary to what people who know me in real life will tell you, I actually have a very small mouth (laughs) compared to most people. I was hoping you were going to go there. (laughs) Same Z's. Yes, medically speaking, I have a small mouth. How much I use it is a completely different question. But (laughs) one of the uses that salt has, medically speaking, when it comes to your mouth and teeth, is that gargling salt will help the wounds in your mouth when a tooth has been removed close up in a healthy and fairly quickly way. So if you've had a tooth removed for some reason, or multiple teeth, such as wisdom teeth removal, or I had a tooth taken out because I couldn't afford to get it fixed, they will tell you to gargle salt salt water a couple of times a day. You want it to be warm. It's not unpleasant tasting because of course we like salt as humans, but it is a little weird. You kind of have to get used to it. But if you gargle the salt and allow it to sit over the wound for a little while each time, it does help the gum tissue to dehydrate itself. And that means that it will bleed less and it will heal up faster. Hmm. So I've done that a few times. That's fascinating because I have a very vivid memory when I was a kid. We lived like 45 minutes to an hour from Glenwood where there's a hot springs. And I remember one time, like, I do not like the taste of salt water. I don't think it tastes good at all. So whenever I've been like in the ocean or anything, I'm like, oh, well, ocean salt water is different than making your own salt water at home with iodized salt and like pure tap water. Ocean salt water has a whole mess of other stuff in it. I suppose that's true. But the Glenwood hot springs were salt water. And I remember one time when I was in the pool and I had been just hanging out and a bee had stung the back of my hand and I like got rid of the bee. Right. But then didn't want to stop to get out of like being in the pool. I didn't want to get out. And so I just kind of like held it there and I think we put salt on it, but also the water was salty and sure it would dehydrate the inflammation. Yeah. It was so good. I was like amazed because I've been stung other times and I'm not allergic or anything, but like 
the pain lasts and it doesn't go away nearly as fast as it did that day. Sure. Well, count yourself lucky. I count myself a very overprotected only child, actually. But yes, that's probably why. (laughs) Also fair. Also fair. Yes. So Emily, what about salt and pop culture? Yes. Lots about salt and pop culture and not just because someone turned into a pillar of salt, potentially out of grief for a community that she lost. Sure. Yes, I'm talking about Lot's wife again. But there's also other ones. So one of the movies that I really love from when I was in school and that I have mentioned on and off on this podcast is Salt of the Earth, which is about a coal miner's strike and particularly about the spouses, the wives of the coal miners and their commitment to not just improving their own lives, but improving the lives of everyone in their community. I watched it, I believe, in Spanish or in Spanish and English, but you should be able to find it in whatever you want. Highly recommend. Highly, highly recommend. Also, Mark Kurlansky wrote a book called Salt, A World History. So if you want to dig deeper into how salt has existed throughout history and what impact it has had on humanity and on world history, that would be, you know, the titular book, as they say. Sure. Also, you may have heard of the old superstition about throwing salt over your shoulder. So the reason this came about is because salt was precious, historically speaking. It takes some effort to make salt, and you can't do it everywhere. And so because it became a precious material, historically speaking, spilling salt was supposedly bad luck. I mean, you'd be wasting salt. You didn't want to do that. And so if you Mm -hmm. did spill salt over time, the tradition came up that you were supposed to take a pinch of the spilled salt and throw it over your left shoulder. And the reason this came about was because the idea was that you were chasing the bad luck that you would have otherwise away by throwing it over your left shoulder because that was supposedly where the devil sat. You've heard the theory of people having a devil on a shoulder and an angel on a shoulder. The idea was that the devil was on your left shoulder and the angel was on your right shoulder. This also probably goes into the whole left-handed thing as evil idea. And so you were basically throwing salt at the devil to, you know, try to kill the devil like you would a slug. (laughs) That's fantastic. And that tracks with what we know from, for those folks who joined us in our crossover episode of Horror Nerds at Church, where we covered Hocus Pocus 2 this year or Hocus Pocus 1 last year or the movie commentary that we put on Patreon this year. But part of how they repelled the witches and how they kept the witches stuck in the garage in Hocus Pocus 2 was a circle of salt until the Roomba came in. and Oh, Roombas. I know, for real. Yeah. And then finally, last but certainly not least, don't be so salty. (laughs) Salty is not a new term. It was popular back in like 1938, according to Edam Online Dictionary. Mm-hmm. And it described someone being annoyed or angry about something. According to Urban Dictionary, it's also connected to the Navy and military service. So the annoyed and angry comes from the concept of people crying salty tears. But from the Navy, it was a term used for someone who had already been out on ships for a while, who was kind of maybe jaded is a term we would use, but the magic of being like out on their first ship had disappeared. And so they were salty. They had been, you know, covered in salt water and sea breeze and stuff. It also is more commonly and colloquially, it is a slang term in African-American vernacular English, as well as in drag and queer communities. There's a great article that we'll link to that goes into a lot of the interplay in drag, queer, African-American communities and slang and what words are appropriate to use and what words might be cultural appropriation and how to kind of navigate that space. But salty is one of those where when we call people salty in the queer community, that is a queer thing. And in African-American communities, that is also an African-American thing. And there's complicated relationships there, recognizing that that Essentially, it comes from drag performers and trans women of color, particularly Black trans women. So it comes from the intersection of both of those communities. Yeah. So don't be salty. Yeah. Our first reading for this episode is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 9a, and you may also hear verses 9b through 12. 
God tells religiously unobservant Israel that if they want to earn God's favor, they should enact justice and help the poor, instead of observing fast days as repentance, which is furthering injustice and oppression among them. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea that God is calling the people of Israel to is that their piety would be their faithfulness and their faith practices would be in the service of justice as opposed to furthering injustice. And when I think about that, I frequently think of very strategic vigils that happen. Vigils happen all the time when somebody's hurt, but there are also ways that people do it intentionally. When I was in Iowa, we did one outside the police station every week. Sure. But the originals in my memory and where that idea came from for us in Iowa is the Madres de Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And during the dictatorship, there were so many, especially young men who were being disappeared by the government, by the military dictatorship, and nobody could do anything about it. And so these madres, whose sons had been disappeared, or daughters or kids, mostly it was sons, but it was anybody resisting the dictatorship. These madres came to Plaza de Mayo every Thursday at 1 p.m. and held a picture of their kid who had been disappeared and walked in circles. I, when I was in study abroad in college, they were still doing it. And there's right now, as they get older, it's harder and harder, but they're still there holding vigil. And it was one of the few ways that they could resist the oppression of the dictatorship. They were one of the few people. And that was one of the few ways that they could do it because they, the dictatorship couldn't do anything because they were just walking and there were just little old ladies walking. So as we jump into the verses, in the first part of verse one, we read, shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. And when I read this, my initial urge was to try to imagine how a superhero with a voice like a trumpet would, you know, work as a superhero. And make your voice like a trumpet. And I was trying to think of times when fiction has, you know, gotten close to that idea of superheroes with altered voices, that kind of thing. And then I realized that there is this fairly common sci-fi trope that does not scientifically work because Mm -hmm. there is this common idea of you take a person in science fiction and you make them gigantic. You make them start to grow for various reasons. Mm -hmm. In the 50s, usually it was because, of course, they were hit by radiation, which radiation can do all kinds of wacky things to you because we didn't understand radiation. Mm -hmm. And thus came like movies like The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and other various terrible B-movies. And also, (laughs) I could swear there was at least one episode of the original Twilight Zone that did something like this, too. And I think I've seen another one or two more of the B-movies because my dad loves those. I just remember this one, Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, yes, that too. Absolutely. Although I think he started as a giant rather than, but yes. Details, details. But the thing is, what often happens with that trope is that once you start getting bigger, your voice gets louder, right? Mm -hmm. But technically speaking, because of how the voice works and how vocal cords work, I don't think, like your voice might get somewhat louder just because you're bigger, but as your vocal cords get larger, I think what would actually happen is that your voice would get deeper and would be pitched lower. And then eventually, depending on how large you got, your voice might not actually be something that human ears could detect because Mm. what happens if you take a violin and you make it larger into a cello, it doesn't get louder cellos aren't especially louder than violins it just gets lower pitched so Hmm. i wonder if you got big enough would you eventually hit the point where no one could hear you interesting that does not sound like a superpower no but so then that raises a question dogs probably wouldn't hear you but elephants because they can hear higher yeah but elephants probably would because they communicate through their feet and the vibrations of the earth and the lower you got the bigger the vibration i would think yeah. Like more substantial. Fascinating. Fascinating, really. <laughs> As if those B movies didn't need yet another reason their science doesn't work. You know. I was thinking when you were talking about the trumpets, I was thinking of the like little cartoons of the like bike horns that are like animated and running around. Oh, sure. But when I was looking at the texts and the verses, I was looking at verse 3B where. 
God tells the people of Israel, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. And the picture that was painted by this and like kind of the verses around it reminded me in the book Bitter Blue from the Graceling Realm, which I've been rereading that series. So get ready, folks. Lots more coming. But in Bitter Blue, she became queen when she was 10 and is now 18. So she's starting to like get more involved in like her city and her country. And she finds out that there are these like city improvements, note the air quotes. And it's like, instead of repairing a roof, they just like staple a tarp up there and paint it over. Or like these things that are completely superficial and like really poorly done all in the name of like forward progress so that just gives me that sense of like okay you're fasting and it's just like this whitewash tarp over the actual like concerns of god and of the people in your community And then when we read the first part of verse four, we read, Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. And so this is talking about fasting as a method of repentance. But the thing is, that doesn't actually work for everyone. Fasting does not always lead you to feel repentant. Sometimes Mm -hmm. fasting will lead you to feel violent and angry. And this verse is totally about me. Functionally speaking, I really can't (laughs) fast as a spiritual discipline. Not for medical reasons, necessarily. I'm sure it's probably related to, like, medically speaking, what fasting does to me. But the thing is that if I try to fast intentionally, I get super mean. And, like, you don't want to be around me. I've been told that by several people. Mm. I can miss about one meal and I'm generally okay. But if it goes any further than that, you don't want to be within hearing distance of me. And no one needs their pastor in that mood. And so I haven't really been at churches lately that have been doing fasting. But when I've tried the 36-hour fast and things like that when I was younger, that did not go well. Yeah, I've never done it. And when I miss a meal, it's noticeable. Even if I don't eat enough on a Sunday morning, sometimes it's hard yeah, to get through a absolutely. Service. I guess I've always thought that my family has a tendency towards diabetes. And so I mm. always expected that my blood sugar might be a little more touchy than most people just because mm. so many of us have wound up with diabetes. Yeah. Also, I have to imagine that there's plenty of fictional characters who wouldn't be able to fast for similar reasons. I would not ask Katniss from Hunger Games to fast for repentance because she would probably want to shoot me. <laughs> Let's be <laughs> honest with her background. Well, and she's one of the people that like would probably be able to survive okay without quite enough right. food because she's had to. But like to ask someone who has had to go without because they didn't have access to it to fast as repentance yeah that's a whole different emotional sledgehammer that really you just don't want to bring up with someone Mm -hmm. with her massive abilities to commit violence so yeah (laughs) that doesn't sound like a good plan and also i just like to say that you know if one spiritual discipline doesn't work for you generally speaking that's okay that's why we have lots of them and Mm -hmm. you can find something else yeah also just a psa fasting is not a diet no, no, totally that's different not reasons for, that's and not, purposes yeah, and d- designs. Yeah, just don't. And then in verse 12, we read, Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And again with Bitter Blue. But it just works so well. <laughs> but once as she's 18 in the book, Bitter Blue. And so when she is at this age and she starts to figure out how messed up everything is in her city and in her kingdom because her father was like a manipulative, sadistic psychopath. Basically, he had this magic power that he could lie and make people believe him. Very dangerous. But then when she starts to figure it out, she actually becomes the repairer of the breach and the restorer of these streets in her city and the streets to live in because she actually faces the harm that was done and she creates the space to talk about it and then to make reparations for it. Yeah. It's really exciting because I just love Bitter Blue. (laughs) And then our second reading for this episode (laughs) is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and optionally also verses 13 through 16. Paul reminds the Corinthians that he doesn't teach like the Greek philosophers do, proclaiming their own wisdom. 
but simply holds up Christ's death and resurrection for us to compare our lives to. So one of the themes in this passage is wisdom, right? Paul is talking about wisdom and what is wisdom. So we know from our episode where we did a deep dive into wisdom, I believe last year for Holy Trinity Sunday, Mm -hmm. that Sophia is the Hebrew for it, but woman wisdom is a very significant character in the Hebrew Bible and is connected to Jesus as the Logos or Word of God. Mm -hmm. And this is decidedly in contrast to divergence Janine Matthews, the head of Erudite, who theoretically would be full of wisdom and knowledge, but yeah, no, not wise, power hungry, different things. Yeah, very much. And then in verse two, we read, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? I'm with Paul on this one. That sounds like a great way to get out of decision-making to me. I frequently can't make decisions. I'm indecisive. So (laughs) that's like, great. I don't know. Where should we go to eat? I don't know. I just know Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, I would think that that would lead you to be constantly self-sacrificing. Maybe. You you know that Jesus sacrificed himself for you, and therefore you should sacrifice yourself for others. So Mm -hmm. I don't know where we should go out to eat, but I think you should pick. (laughs) Maybe. Somehow I don't think my friends would let me get away with that for too long. I have one friend who talks about it as like decision therapy. (laughs) She forces me to decide. (laughs) Best of luck with that, Emily's friend. Let's (laughs) see how that goes. Sometimes works. Mm -hmm. And then in verse three, we read, and I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so having decided to save his lofty words and mysteries for those of us in the later generations, thanks, Paul, hashtag thanks, Obama, he decides on a specific approach to his audience when he comes to Corinth for the first time, which is fine. Knowing your audience is useful when you're going to be making, in Paul's case, what is essentially a sales pitch that is very much out of left field, like the concept of a God who was willing to be crucified. Very weird in that context. It's Mm going to take him a lot of work to get there. So Mm -hmm. I get that. But the thing is, is that you'll note that he does not say that anything of what he's doing is deceptive. He's not lying in any way. He is Mm -hmm. truly in fear and trembling, I guess, because if he was deceptive, that would destroy the people's trust in him. And Mm -hmm. for those of us who grew up watching VHS tapes of Broadway musicals, because that was what was on our parents' shelves, you may remember the Music Man. The only reason that that town managed to ever trust him again was because he had actually come to care about the kids and he acted in that way, which meant that he wasn't actually lying to them anymore. Also, I've never actually seen the Music Man, I don't think. Oh, it is very fun. I believe you. And then in verse five, we read, so that your faith may rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. I know I beat up on Paul a lot in this podcast, (laughs) but there are some times when what Paul says is indeed very wise. And please, for the entirely literal love of God, don't ever let your faith rest on human wisdom. That goes to very (laughs) bad places. This is a terrible idea. We will disappoint you eventually. Trust in God and not in human nature. And if you want an example of why that's a terrible idea, there is the Doctor Who episode, The Santaran Stratagem from the 10th Doctor's Time, which shows the difference between intelligence and wisdom with an extremely clever young man who is able to do extraordinary things with science, but doesn't ask if he should do those things with science. And then also Mm -hmm. does not realize that he cannot necessarily trust the people who he has made a deal with, who are going to come and destroy the human race. Weirdly enough. And that goes very badly. And so it turns out that being clever isn't everything. And even very intelligent people are not always wise. Yeah. It's almost like what happened during world war two and the building of the atomic bomb. exploring knowledge but without the wisdom to know where it would lead yeah they figured that out a little too late yeah there's a great book about the making of the atomic bomb called bomb by steve shankin and he used to be a history teacher and now he, he writes books but it is a book that is accurate and historical but is actually like super readable and does a great job of covering like all of the different dynamics around making the creation of 
the atomic bomb, the subtitle is The Race to Build and Steal the World's Most Dangerous Weapon. So definitely check that out if you're interested in those sorts of wisdom versus knowledge, weapons of mass destruction, that particular intersection. And remember, murder bad. Murder very bad, indeed. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 14, we read, Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are discerned spiritually. And this reminded me, I just still working my way through Buffy and Angel and just started season seven of Buffy. And she gets her kid sister, Dawn, on her like first day of high school, a present. And we don't see what is in it, but Dawn's like, did you get me a weapon? Because she's finally like started to teach Dawn how to protect herself and fight and stuff. And it turns out later in the episode to be a phone. And so Mm -hmm. it was a gift and weapon, but only if you have the right kind of wisdom and foolishness to understand how a phone can be a weapon. Yeah. And then our gospel reading for this episode is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Reminding the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount to be the light of the world, Jesus announces that he has come to fulfill and not abolish the law. So one of the themes in this passage is the law and prophets. And in fact, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends a whole bunch of time quoting the Tanakh, which is the Torah, a.k.a. the law, the Nevi'im, a.k.a. the prophets, and the Ketuvim, a.k.a. the writings. But yet he's been like quoting them since the beginning of the Beatitudes. Yeah. Because Verses three through eight, actually, of chapter five, which are like the first two thirds of the Beatitudes, are pretty much just direct quotes from various parts of the Hebrew scriptures. I was looking that up this week. Yeah. And that's, you know, Because they're life-giving. Because the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is not the laws that govern us unjustly in this country, right? This is the word of God to guide us in our living. Very different. Yeah, sure. So in verse 14, we read, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. And this is still quite literally true in the modern day, that a city built on a hill cannot be hit. Part Mm -hmm. of why the city of London fared so badly in the World War II Blitz when the Germans were bombing them is because the center of the city is quite literally on a hill. And blackout Mm -hmm. curtains can only do so much when you have that many windows exposed to the sky, essentially. Mm -hmm. We're in like a World War II kind of kick right now. Fascinating. I guess so. We just have lots of references. It, I mean, bombs. also American public school systems tend to over-educate us about World War II and under-educate us about everything since then. But It's true. And before. Yep. And then in verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16, right after that, we read Jesus saying, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And our house just got these fancy schmancy light bulbs that change colors and there's like a an app called govi and you can like make it change colors and so it brings that is the most in character thing for you that i've ever heard i know right (laughs) but it's like a whole new like interpretation of let your light shine before others like (laughs) i can create my custom light or my custom like set of lights that it rotates through it's so cool. Sure. And like, I have a nebula that like shines on my ceiling. And so I can make it match. And then I can like, it can slowly turn off. I can set it as an alarm clock for, you know, mostly Sunday morning when I have to wake up early and then it helps me wake up and it's already on and I don't have to worry about it. So exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. And we all share so we can mess with each other's rooms. We haven't yet, but I've been tempted many times. I have resisted the temptation. We're all very proud of you. Thank you. (laughs) But again, absolutely in character. Yeah. Yep. And then in verse 18, we read, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so we've talked before about how translation is sort of a difficult thing. And when you are translating from the Hebrew, and then you also shift from talking about the Hebrew alphabet into talking about the English alphabet, when we read the not one stroke of a letter piece of the law shall pass away, that can be approximately understood as not one dot over a letter I, you know, 
or not mm-hmm. one cross of a T. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking dot about your that. Dot your T's and cross your I's. Exactly. Or dot your I's and cross your T's. I mean, both. Yes, that's yeah. that's helpful yeah. if you want that's other it. people to be able to read what you're writing. Mm-hmm. And we have previously also on this podcast cast Samuel L. Jackson as Moses, who tradition says was the one who wrote down most of the law in the Hebrew scriptures. Moses, not Samuel L. Jackson, just to be clear. Yes, probably i mean i suppose he could like actually be the immortal moses but i'm not gonna ask i don't know that that would go well and the hebrew scriptures are also super clear like very much just keep reinforcing the concept that the law of god is an expression of god's love for us it's a gift from god as an expression of love and so now i want the version of the story where moses as he's writing down the law of god puts little hearts over all of the eyes or whatever the hebrew like equivalent of the that yod. would be when he's writing it down okay, yes the, it would the be little the yod, dots over the, the yod, little, uh, and, and also like various other letters and yeah so. not even the dots because that's like the pointing of the vowels but just to change the like, yod into a heart would be so adorable absolutely Absolutely. And so that would be how he'd express the love of God. And then, of course, in the modern retelling of that story, he, I'm sure, would be using a glitter gel pen. Naturally. Naturally. Yes. Yeah. We have a supply. I suppose we could could throw in some optional Muppets for that. But I think Samuel L. Jackson could pull that whole scene off all by himself if he wanted. I think he could. Also, Miss Piggy would be right there to, like, sprinkle some extra glitter and absolutely and janice i I think janice would enjoy that too okay and i looked at verse 18 and verse 20 so verse 18 that we just read and then also for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter the reign of heaven and it's a trick it's a trick jesus who breaks the binaries is like until heaven and earth pass away and then you'll never enter the reign of heaven well yeah because they're gonna pass away at least in the way that we know and understand them. And so there's not going to be a reign of heaven that you have to enter because it will have passed away and it will just be everywhere. So I love the way that this like gets really complicated and delightfully queer. Sure, kind of a little bit like the Cylon human binary gets broken down eventually and passes away in Battlestar Galactica. Spoilers. Sure. And now for our saltiest segment. <laughs> Let's make a Muppets musical. Who are you casting for this? Well, I already brought up the idea of Samuel L. Jackson writing down the law of God with little hearts replaced for various bits of the Hebrew language. But as we were talking about this, and as you actually mentioned your last bit, for the it's a trick i was reminded of the meme that has been on the internet since approximately forever of it's a trap with admiral akbar Mm. from star wars and i realized that technically speaking admiral akbar is not actually a muppet he is not a creation of jim henson but there are so many times in the bible when things are a trap and i love the concept of us being a nerdy podcast that every so (laughs) often admiral akbar just pokes his head out from behind stage and yells it's a trap at the audience during the musical (laughs) (laughs) so i'm totally on board for that that's fantastic that's star wars yeah yeah star wars okay so maybe he's not a muppet but maybe he could like go visit the muppets for a while oh it works the musical i think he'd have fun yeah it 100% works yeah that's fantastic i love it it's a trap the sermon on the mount is just tricky because jesus is like it's not narrative so it's harder to right oh oh you know what we need also i sorry mm-hmm. i keep doing this but apology i rejected. want the swedish chef to teach us about salt Ooh. i don't yes. think it would be very effective <laughs> but it would be a lot of fun and dr Bunsen and... Yes, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, I believe is his full name, and Beaker could also teach us about salt, and they would be more effective. But the Swedish chef would be having a lot of fun in the background with, you know, very large knives. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beaker would be maybe not as effective well, as yeah. Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. Well, he, but... he might be, like, having some snacks. That that could keep him going. That's true. That's true. I do think it's interesting because part of, like, what Sesame Street and Muppets do is to resist the, like, you must follow these rules exactly. And so the idea of, like, you must fast. Like, no, they would be with the, like, no, this person can't fast. We need to, like, make other accommodations. Yes. And also several of the Muppets are very big on feeding each other. Like, they would be sneaking each other snacks. Oh, my gosh. Cookie Monster. 
Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> Cookie Monster and Salted Caramel. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the sixth Sunday after Epiphany. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As coming up soon, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerds at church. It's cheaper than whatever salary you get. <laughs> Although I doubt the Italian army still pays that way, but yeah. Well, details. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox, Pox Fobiscum. Fobiscum.